developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 435, The Dogs of War. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine each and every episode and movie in the Star Trek universe, try and pack in as much information as we can, and see if they withstand the test of time. This week, dogs of war, as in cry havoc and let slip. Yes, those dogs of war. And now... All you can hear and see in your head is General Chang yelling this and spinning in his chair, and you are welcome. Thank you, John. I feel welcome, and thank you for that visual. We all love General Chang. We'll try and bring this back to Deep Space Nine, but until then, here's how you can reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion to let slip the dogs of trivia. Oh, those are my favorite dogs. Today's trivia for the dogs of war. We have a story by... Peter Allen Fields, and it's great to see a returning name on the show. Peter, you may recall, was a Hollywood veteran and had worked as a script consultant and sometime writer on Next Generation. When DS9 launched, he became a producer at the outset and stuck around for a couple of seasons, but he also contributed 10 scripts total. The last time we saw his name in the credits was toward the end of season six. He wrote the story for In the Pale Moonlight. This episode is Peter's final Trek contribution, and he passed away in 2019. We have a teleplay here by Rene Echeverria and Ronald D. Moore, and, you know, good for them. They mostly got to work from a clean slate here. You might recall that when we started this arc for the finale of DS9, there was a lot of back and forth where one writer was working on a script with an element that would directly affect an element in the next script, so they had to coordinate quite a bit. Even though this story continues a lot of threads that have been established, they pretty much got to start over and not have to worry about what had directly happened in the previous episodes. This one was directed by Avery Brooks, and it's his final directing credit on DS9, and actually his final professional directing credit in film or TV ever. His only directorial contributions were on DS9. Now, our title, as we mentioned, of course, that is from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And, of course, you remember General Chang quoting it in Star Trek VI. But, you know, let's face it, Shakespeare always sounds great in the original Klingon. And, fun enough, there was a deleted scene from this episode. Uh, when we get to that point where Garrick, Kira, and Damar are all hiding out in the cellar, well, there was a scene where they all got drunk. And we can probably imagine that it would be on Kanar, and too bad that that is lost to editing forever. Let's talk about our guest star as well. We are back to the expected lineup of DS9's extensive cast of recurring characters. We get that double dose of Jeffrey Combs as Wei Yun and Brunt. 
Welcome back to Wally Sean and Cecily Adams as Zach and Ishka, respectively. There's plenty of Andy Robinson and Casey Biggs, too, along with Barry Jenner, Chase Masterson, J.G. Hertzler, Salome Jens, Penny Johnson, Tiny Ron, even. In fact, seems like the only one we're missing is Ciroc. It's very nice to see Juliana McCarthy back as an Auburn Tain and Garrick's housekeeper, Mila. We first mentioned her back in Season 3 with Improbable Cause. We met Seskel briefly in When It Rains, and that is, of course, uh, Vaughn Armstrong, who even to date with the production on this episode had already been in a lot of Star Trek, and there is a bunch more to come as we jump into the next series. We've rarely mentioned Kathy DeBuono as Impella working for Quark. Until now, she's been visible, but hasn't had a significant amount to do. Kathy gets a bit more screen time here, and it's worth pointing out that she has played everything from Klingon to Breen to Vulcan in DS9, and she was also Terry Farrell's body double and stand-in on many occasions. Finally, Leggett Broca, a new Cardassian on the scene, is played by Mel Johnson Jr., Interesting to note that Mel was up for the role of Benjamin Sisko when DS9 was first being cast. Now he's made a lot of TV and film appearances. Uh, you might have caught him on Fresh Prince or Sunset Beach, but I'm going to tell you right now that he was absolutely unforgettable in Total Recall as the mutant cab driver, Benny. And this is the first of Mel's only two Trek appearances. The next generation brought us the puppies, and now it's time for DS9 to let the dogs out. Prologue. The command staff of Deep Space Nine is assembled in ops, anxiously awaiting the arrival of Admiral Ross. Captain Sisko is perhaps the most anxious because not only is Ross visiting the station, but with a very special ship in tow. Esri and Julian are a little distracted from this momentous occasion, trying to tiptoe around their awkward feelings for each other, which haven't gone unnoticed by Worf and Chief O'Brien. As the new ship docks with Deep Space Nine, Sisko and his team embark onto the deck of the USS Sao Paulo, a Defiant-class ship equipped with cutting-edge technology that can counteract the Breen energy dampening weapon, giving the Federation the edge they need to win the war. There's one last surprise— the chief of Starfleet Operations authorized Captain Sisko to rename the Sao Paulo to Defiant in honor of the ship that was destroyed at Chintaka. Meanwhile, after Damar, Garrick, and Kira reach Cardassia Prime and beam down to a secret location to meet with new leaders of Damar's resistance movement, they watch from a secure location above as Jem'Hadar troops and Gul Ravak, Damar's contact-turned-traitor, eliminate all Cardassian resistance fighters in the base. To make matters worse, as Kira tries to contact their ship to beam them out, it is pursued and destroyed by the Dominion, stranding Kira, Damar, and Garrick behind enemy lines. Act 1. With little to no allies on Cardassia Prime to trust or turn to, Garrick reaches out to the one person he knows wouldn't turn him or his comrades over to the Dominion, his old housekeeper, Mila, who cared for Garrick as a boy while Anabrin Tain led the Obsidian Order. Garrick obliges Mila and tries to find a communications array for them so that Kira can contact Starfleet, but Mila has a price for such services. Kira throws a rag at Garrick because grimy and dusty cellars don't clean themselves. Back on DS9, in Bashir's infirmary, the good doctor clears Odo as fit for duty. Julian, however, feels honor-bound to tell Odo that it was Section 31 that infected him in the first place so that Odo would in turn infect the Great Link and ultimately destroy the Founders from within. Disgusted with such underhanded tactics, Odo seeks out Captain Sisko to see what Starfleet is going to do about it. Sisko's response is that Starfleet is going to do nothing about it. Odo takes this affirmation as Starfleet abetting genocide. However, Sisko was quick to point out that they are still at war with Odo's people, and that curing the Founders will only prolong the war. Odo takes his leave, and in even further disgust than before, knowing that even though the Federation condemns Section 31's tactics— it is also willing to turn a blind eye as long as its successfully planned genocide eliminates the founders, destroys the Dominion, and end the war. A tidy little arrangement, indeed. Meanwhile in Quark's, Rom encourages Lita and fellow Dabo girl Mimpella 
to press Cork and reduce his take on their tips. But as they confront him, he's called away by a private, albeit heavily garbled communication by the Grand Nagus, who tells Quark he's retiring from his position and is coming to Deep Space Nine to appoint Quark as his successor. Act Two. Continuing their pattern of awkward run-ins and sidestepping each other, Bashir nearly knocks Ezri over in the replimat as she's trying to have lunch. They cut to the proverbial chase and finally confess to each other how they really feel and that their infatuations for each other can be left at that for the sake of true friendship. Back in Quark's, the Grand Nagus's revelation has Quark on his back, literally, as he is laying down awash in the splendor of becoming the Nagus. Shortly after, Liquidator Brunt, F-C-A, arrives, more apprehensive than confident, as he probes Quark to see if the rumors on Ferenginar are true. Quark assures him that they are, and Brunt snaps to sucking up to the boss, especially knowing that there is a lot of bad latinum between them. On Cardassia Prime, on every monitor that is an earshot of every Cardassian citizen, Wayun declares that Damar is dead, and that all 18 of his resistance bases have been destroyed. Demoralized and cut off from communicating to the outside world for aid, Damar, Kira, and Garrick resign themselves to the hopelessness of their current situation. Act 3. In Quark's quarters, it appears that Brunt's capacity for sucking up to the future Grand Nagus has no end in sight, as he went from kissing the proverbial ring to pedicuring the literal toenails. As Brunt continues to pamper Quark, he naturally tries to bribe him to forgive past transgressions. However, upon receipt of said bribe, which proves that the bribe is tax-deductible, Quark is overwhelmed by Brunt's deluge of how Ferenginar, their culture and their whole way of life has been changed with social programs, equal opportunity, and compassion. Quark is beside himself and declares that when he comes to power, so will the Ferengi traditions of unadulterated greed and oppression. This he swears, as does Brunt kneeling at the altar of their blessed exchequer. Back on Cardassia and Mila's cellar, Damar, Garrick, and Kira continue to lick their wounds, resigning to the fact that their rebellion has been crushed and the fight is over. However, Mila tells him that she hears rumblings across the Cardassian capital from those who believe that Damar isn't dead. Kira believes that they have a chance to incite revolution in the streets and that Damar can turn the people into the army he needs to overthrow the Dominion occupying Cardassia. All they need is a small victory. A nearby Jem'Hadar barracks would do nicely. Nearby, in the Dominion Command Center, Wayun introduces the female changeling to the new leader of occupied Cardassia, Legate Broca, who pledges his loyalty to the founders as Damar once did. The female changeling outlines a new soft withdrawal strategy so that the Dominion can replenish their forces, generate new clones of Jem'Hadar, and regroup for a final counterattack to end the war once and for all. Act 4. In the quiet of the staircase and raptors atop his bar... Quark and Rom ruminate about the socially progressive changes that are happening on Ferenginar. As Quark laments about the socially progressive changes that are, in his opinion, ravaging and ruining his once great society, of which he is imminently close to inheriting as Nagus, Rom sees things differently and disagrees with his brother at every turn, while manipulating a very distracted Quark into selling the bar without even negotiating the price. Believing that he too has gone soft from the exposure of this disease that has weakened Ferenginar, Quark resolves himself to draw the line here and no further, as he declares to Rom that he will end Ferenginar's internal decay. Meanwhile on Cardassia, Kira and Damar wait nearby in a darkened alleyway as Garrick tries to leave the scene of a Jem'Hadar barracks where he successfully placed a bomb. As the Jem'Hadar patrol questions him, Kira tells Damar that the bomb's three-minute fuse has seconds left, and that Garrick may be too late to escape the blast. Act 5. Out of time and out of options, Damar exposes himself to the Jem'Hadar, becoming the perfect distraction for Kira to gun down one of the guards as Garrick knifes the other in the throat. Suddenly, a blast erupts from the barracks and tosses the passers-by to the ground. As the smoke clears, the crowd picks themselves up from the aftermath of the explosion and see Damar standing tall and very much alive, his sudden appearance is a stirring call to action that inspires the citizens of Cardassia to join his revolution and to become the army to overthrow the Dominion. Back on the station, Julian and Ezri once again awkwardly run into each other near the turbo lift on their way to Ops and seem to have overcome their fear of ruining their friendship 
as O'Brien and Worf observed shortly after, when the turbo lift arrives with Julian and Esri locked in a very passionate kiss. Worf, understanding the truth of the moment, sends the turbo lift away, giving Esri and Julian the privacy they deserve. Meanwhile in Quark's, Grand Nagus Zek and Moogie arrive to put an end to Quark's anxieties about becoming the next Ferengi leader, because he wasn't Zeki's choice to begin with. Garbled communications aside, Zek, or perhaps Moogie, or both of them together, actually chose Rom to be the next Nagus because he was the most suitable to continue Ferenginar's current state of social reformism. And even though he still thinks Rom is an idiot, Quark is relieved and happy for his brother, but promises to make his bar the last bastion of the old ways of Ferenginar. In the wardroom, Captain Sisko, Admiral Ross, Romulan Subcommander Valal, and newly minted Chancellor Martok all agree that as the Dominion retreats to fortify their position and rebuild their resources, it is time for the Allied forces to push the advantage, even if the cost for such an aggressive decision will be exceedingly high. Sisko believes that the Dominion is counting on a detente as both sides regroup and resupplies their positions, which is why they all agree that the time to strike is now. After the meeting, Benjamin returns to his quarters, only to find a very awake and distraught Cassidy waiting for him. She nervously tells him that she's pregnant and is worried about the future of their child. Cassidy reminds Benjamin of the prophet's warning of sorrow, but he assures her that everything is going to be all right. He is the emissary of the prophets, after all. The End Nicely done, Norman. And to get us kicked off here with our uh, short, quirky observations, because really it could be anything. Sometimes it's a plot point. Sometimes it's a character moment. Or sometimes I like to point out special effects. And there was something, I, I don't know if you noticed, it was so minor, but I thought it was so good. There was the transporter effect in mm -hmm. the teaser. In the background, Ezra and Julian, they're just talking, and you rarely at this point in Star Trek have a transporter effect where there is live action in the foreground. So I kept re-watching it and freeze-framing it and everything and, and wondering, was it split-screen or was it a little clever use of CG? It was really nicely done, and it made the opposite look very alive. Um, and, and by the way, it's combined with camera movement, which, again, is very rare when you have a transporter effect. And there's, like, the faintest little ripple in the background possibly hiding the actor that was there, so that kind of makes me think it was CG. It was great. It was very cool, very subtle, and just very quick. Yeah, I thought it was. It just brought a lot of life to the scene. Like, yeah, of course, someone would transport into mm -hmm. ops, you know, from an alternate universe or not, because people do that all the time. <laughs> appears in they do that all 9. the time. They just, yeah. yeah. I mean, come on, yeah. you, you can do that. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, why not beam into the heart of the Deep Space Nine, you know, command center during the course of a war? I mean, who wouldn't do that? Sure, of course, right? of course. Yeah, <laughs> Worf has a line. I and, and look, I, I will say, and we, we may wrap up with some more Worf talk, but there is not a ton of Worf in this, and, and I do have a bit of sympathy for him at some point. It's like, uh, okay, there goes his, you know, ex-wife. Now with the new guy, she has to watch him. But he has this line. He is an overgrown child. She is confused. I just thought, you know what, Worf? I know you're hurting. You got no say here. <laughs> you really don't. But whatever, man. And I also, I, I want to talk about the arrival of the Sao Paulo a little bit and the renaming to Defiant. It was very dramatic to lose the Defiant a few episodes ago as we did and and part of me felt like this was a bit sudden to get a new ship and maybe i would have liked to have seen some more noticeable changes to that ship like hey look what we've been working on in the last few years but then just to automatically rename it defiant i i, I kept the what about all the people who you know put the paint job and the dedication plaque together the one that says sao paulo I, if they're going to rename it I feel like I wanted a more dramatic or meaningful moment. Not that this was bad. I wanted something different, though. I mean, I think that... A, a, I don't know what's going to happen in the next episode, the finale. But I think that there needed to be a moment where the ship earned the name Defiant. Tough little ship. Right? Yeah, right, right. It just seemed like, like because Admiral Ross hands Cisco the pad... Mm -hmm. It's just, just like, oh, look here. Like, it's already a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. 
and, and I wanted to see it be more of like an earn, more like an emotional moment for the crew. I mean, I did, I did like know? it when Again, Cisco just sat there alone when everyone like left to explore the ship, and he's like, "Hello, ship." That was nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. nice. It, it, it was nice. And, and look, I, I know that I'm being super picky about it. Um, it. It's just that so much happens in this episode, and I wanted that moment to be even more of an earned mm-hmm. moment. True, true. So, you know, that, that that's all it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't hate the fact that we got a new ship. <laughs> I will say that. Yeah. Oh, I, I will say that because she probably won't be a big focus of our discussion today. I really like Mila, uh, 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 Nabrin Tain and Garrick's housekeeper. Mm-hmm. She's just, I love that DS9 will do something like that. Go back and grab a character we met three years ago, bring them back. And she is just somebody who feels very real in that universe. Yeah. Like, we don't get a lot of her, but even just by saying uh, a, a, a simple line about, you know, not caring about what like, she's too to old to care about. Was, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, that just felt real. It felt like something you would honestly encounter in the fabric of Cardassian society. Well, I love it when she said, I was never much of a cook, but I knew how to keep a secret. So it's pretty much kind of like the DNA of all Cardassians, right? So you would have, like, what if Mila was like a dentist? You know, I I wasn't much of a dentist, yeah. but I knew how to keep a secret, you know? <laughs> dot, dot, dot. That's all that matters. Exactly. Like, right. Cardassia is about right. keeping secrets. They make the Romulans look like, you know, uh, cha- you know children when it comes to, like, secrets and subterfuge. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that... Totally. When, yeah. when Dr. Bashir clears Odo for, you know, for duty, uh, he... He kind of soft apologizes for the Federation, you know, when he said that Section 31 isn't part of the Federation. I thought that Bashir was all this organization that has slithered into the way of the heart of the Federation has to be destroyed. I'm like, don't let up the gas, you know, on your vengeance. You spent an entire freaking episode on that. Right. So now you can't split hairs about it. You can't. Yeah, you know. I, I was very unhappy with that little uh, caveat on that line. That that was not cool. Yeah. Hey, and I mentioned it in the uh, trivia, but I'll mention it again. You know, here we are almost to the end of our seventh season, and we finally get dialogue out of Impella. I mean, I think we might have had a line or two here and there in the last, you know, six and three quarter years. But I, it's so good to just actually, you know, she's part of the fabric of the bar. It's good to, to see her have something and some business to do there. So that was cool. I really like the effects quality and the garbled communications between Quark and Grand Negasek. I mean, it's like... <laughs> it's kind of like the Zoom call we're having right now. It's like what we do every week. Yeah. I know. <laughs> right? Always fighting with your technology. Exactly. I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. All right. I, it, like I said, I don't know how much of what plot points we're going to hit in our discussion today, but a uh, quick thing about Ezri and Julian. I will say that I, I'm glad that we finally got there. I, I almost wish that it had come earlier because you look back on the season and it feels like there's a lot of just kind of misdirection and and concentration on areas that ultimately don't really matter. So it, it does feel like a bit of an earned relationship. So I'm glad that they finally got there. And look, there is some truth to the dialogue that they have about attraction between friends, getting mixed up with romantic feelings, especially in the workplace. I, and I'm fine with all of that. I, I thought there was truth to what was going on there. And it was just fun. I, I do have to wonder how Ferengi wear shoes uh, if their toenails are that long. Hey, did, um, did you look like really close at what Brunt was using? Didn't it look like the Ferengi tooth sharpener? It did. It did. Yes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just wonder wondering if they're that. using like the same tool like for all of their hygiene. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Uh, kind of weird. I uh, wouldn't put it past them, though. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to ask you about the line from uh first contact you know the line has to be drawn yeah yeah this far and no further i like here's as a star trek fan you watch that and you go like okay when this episode came out it's only been a couple of years since we saw first contact and that was such a big dramatic scene did it feel and i'm tipping the hat here i did it feel out of place to you well i mean as a star trek fan even if I don't know Deep Space Nine that well, I know that line, right? That's yeah, okay. You know, so yeah. it's the it's akin to if they if someone mentioned the name Khan Noonien Singh in Deep Space Nine, and mm-hmm. someone out there just yelled Khan, 
on. You know, like everyone knows yeah. that because it's become part of the pop culture vernacular. In in Star Trek, you know, that's why I kind of tipped my hand to it in the you know in the recap when Picard says the line was drawn. Yeah, I mean it was so yeah. it's so iconic, Patrick Stewart, that everyone says that line that way, right? And that's my problem with stuff like that is that. It, it, it almost, you know, 90% of the time to me, then it's going to come across as parody. Mm-hmm. And I get that we're playing Quark and his story a bit as the comic relief, particularly as, you know, the stories get darker and more complex with the war plot line here. But it just, it took me out of it. Yeah. You know, because it, it, it felt like the writer is saying, look how clever we are. Yeah. And I don't know. Maybe people feel differently. Maybe that bit of recognition was something that other people felt like, oh, that's great. I, you know, it's just a funny, funny bit to them. You know, I, I dug seeing the, uh, I guess that would be like the the most or the newest like generation of Jem'Hadar clone. They had like a two-tone to them. You know, they're like yeah. blue and white. I was like, that's yeah. kind of neat. Um, Very but, good. They're always tinkering with their clones. Yeah, exactly. I <laughs> uh, got to say this. Oh, man. So many good moments with Damar. Surrender or die. I choose neither. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was just it was freaking heroic and a great bit after that little build of tension. It's uh, it's so good to see Damar get his groove back, lose his groove and then get his groove back in this episode. I also liked uh, almost like watching Kira watch Damar because obviously she despised Damar at the very beginning of this whole idea of teaching him how to be a resistance fighter. But in that moment, you know, when he rallied everyone together, you know, at, at the street level, she's almost like I did that or Shakar did that. You know, my people did that. Yeah. And now he's doing that. My work here is done. His revolution has started, but there was a modicum of respect. I think yeah. that was that, yeah. that transpired in that scene. I thought that was really, really interesting to watch. I, I thought it was terrific. Um, oh, a, as long as we were pointing out uh, dialogue worth noting, uh, kinder, gentler Nagus. A little, yes, a little flashback <laughs> to the first uh, George Bush. Uh, now, see, that that's the sort of line that I feel like it, it is an appropriate bit of satire or parody. Read my lips, John. Read my lips. <laughs> All new taxes. All, <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, oh, and I will say that uh, from the the Negus's words to avoid the shoals of bankruptcy. I, I, you know, look. Just remember, it's all tax deductible. We're fairly incorruptible. We're sailing on the wide accountancy. <laughs> oh, clever. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just did that. Oh, and by the way, is Risa just full of retirees now? Because for a while there, I thought, hey, Risa sounds like a great place, and uh, now it's just less appealing. It's, it's <laughs> the know, Florida. I think, I think of DS Nine uh, has now, yeah. yeah. Yeah, DS9 has ruined Risa for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I did make mention of this. Uh, I tried to focus on this a little bit in my recap, but there was a mature moment from Worf in this episode. I think that he's like, you know what? I have to be the better man here. And, mm-hmm. and we'll give him this credit. I think that we'll both give him this yep. credit where he just basically said, you know what? This is their time. I'm not going to spoil it. Let them have it. Send the turbo lift down. I really liked that. I thought that was very yeah. mature. Well, it, it was, and you needed to do what they did in the episode, which is for, from an editorial directorial direction. You just you just stay on his reaction for a moment. Yeah. After he sends the, the lift down, you just stay on the reaction, and you get to kind of take in everything that's going through his head. But finally, a mature decision. So in, I'll give him in that. the acting beat though that you're talking about. He seemed mm-hmm. at peace with himself. Okay. I mean, I think that is one layer of it. I think being at peace is one layer. I think the other layer of it is a little bit of defeat, a little bit of resignation. I I think there's a lot happening there. And I I will give Michael Dorn props for bringing a lot to Mm -hmm. that, to just a simple moment. Absolutely. All right. And look, as we're wrapping up (laughs) this part, uh, how about, you know, a curveball in the bottom of the ninth, uh, a pregnancy. (laughs) Hey. But wait, there's more. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, okay, but but look, I, I'll give them this. I, I, at least there's that line. One of us forgot our injection last month. 
And it was Benjamin. And it was Benjamin. So I'm very glad to see that in the future, birth control is easy and expected and also for men. So well done, 24th century. The Grand Nagus is back. I hope you invested in Beatles Snuff Futures. Hey, we'll get right back to the Dogs of War, but first a quick word from and thank you to our friends and our followers over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Mission Log. Norman, catch us up. What has been happening over at Patreon? Well, I think everyone's coming back now from like their their holiday break. So uh, we're, we're seeing like pictures being shared and Epicureanism of holiday food, holiday drink, holiday travel. I think people are starting to catch up on uh, episodes of Star Trek Discovery that they haven't seen or Star Trek Prodigy that they haven't seen because they're binge watching, you know, now that they're back from the holidays. Yes. So that's what, that's yeah. what we do on our discord on Patreon. So many fans get together they they share like all of their fan passions from Star Trek to all different types of science fiction to fantasy to cooking to uh, books that yeah I love that I mean we we've got threads in there that are like 1950s science fiction 60s science and, and always picking up little things uh, like movies and TV shows I've never heard of and it's just great to have this excitement and enthusiasm around. Fandom, And it all comes from our shared love of Star Trek, but then expands out to all these other things we're into. It is truly a community and uh, a, a lot of fun for me to check in there and to see the ongoing conversation. Um, and by the way, you know, if you have joined us at patreon.com slash mission log, thank you again. Shout out to the most recent people who have joined Chris, Matthew, Esten, Patrick, Maddie, Brian, Rachel, Charlie, I, look, there's so many people right now. Uh, I just wanted to grab the most recent that I could. Pleasure to have you there, and I hope that we see you in the Discord and uh, join us for our live shows that we do there, exclusive in Patreon, to discuss each week's episode of Mission Log. So uh, what's that address one more time, Norman? That would be patreon.com slash mission log. Dogs of mm -hmm. War. <laughs> Now, you mentioned it uh, a moment ago in our uh, in our observations about the show, but I, I, I want to kind of bear down on this for a moment longer. Um, Odo and Bashir having this discussion, the Federation set out to destroy my people. And Bashir counters with Section 31 aren't part of the Federation. They're a rogue organization. To which Odo replies, quite correctly, don't split hairs with me, doctor. They used me as an instrument to try to commit genocide. Now, we may be at war with the founders, but that's no excuse. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I, I have nothing additional there. To me, that, that exchange was perfect. It was great. However, <laughs> rogue organization is not the case. And it... It, it makes me question a bit, like, at what point were the writers not on the same page here about what's going on? Because we've seen Bashir's struggle with Section 31. We've seen the history of Section 31 revealed to Dr. Bashir. He knows better, and this is not the time for him to just try to save face on behalf of the Federation to Odo. Um, Odo's his friend, and Bashir just went to heroic lengths to save him. Um, and then, apparently, we learned that the Federation Council decided against sharing the cure. So now the Federation Council knows that there is a cure. They know at least that Bashir has figured it out. And they talked about it. And they presumably are up to speed on Section 31 and just said, yeah, we're not going to share it. It doesn't feel right which goes against so much of what I would like to think are within the ideals baked into the Federation. And I'm sorry, but one last thing here, Cisco's excuse to Odo, the founders started this war, not us, doesn't cut it. Well, it does if you're a five-year-old on a playground, John. You know, I, mean. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm going to say this. I'm glad that those scenes are in this episode, but... These scenes are packed into Act 1, and then we're done, and we never talk about it again in the episode. 
in, in this one episode. And to me, this is the important, morally relevant, Star Trek-y part of the discussion here. And we just glide right by it. We get a few lines of dialogue that kind of are giving me whiplash here about, well, wait, wait, who, whose side is anybody on here? And they just leave it. Um, I've ranted the past few episodes about Section 31 and about, um, oh, what's that word again? Genocide. Um, and I feel like I would just be, you know, covering the same ground here that I did there. But I, I'm really disappointed in how that dialogue shaped between Odo and Bashir and then Odo and Sisko. You know, I, I'm glad that you brought this up. And I want to kind of double down on what you're saying here because I really do think mm -hmm. in this entire episode – that scene between Odo and Cisco, it, it obviously it, it was led into uh, by you know it was introduced. The the scene was introduced by what Bashir said, but Odo goes to Cisco right afterwards. I think that this is probably the most important scene in the episode, and it really, really, really yep. needed to be explored, like you said. But thanks to the hour long waste of time that was Extreme Measures. We lost the opportunity to actually delve into this part of the story, which was way too glossed over, like you said, for what it actually means in Star yeah. Trek. I'm gonna I'm gonna succinctly put this into five words. Planned genocide of a species. By the Federation. By the Federation. Mm -hmm. Right? Let's take a look mm -hmm. at the, the scene the lines in context. The Cisco, Cisco said, the Cisco, Cisco said, the Federation Council considered, <laughs> considered giving the founders a cure, then they decided against it. Odo said, then they were betting genocide. Cisco says, I don't condone what Section 31 mm -hmm. did, but the founders started this war, just like you said, not us. Giving them the cure would strengthen their hand. We can't do that, not when there are still millions of men and women out there putting their lives on the line every day. I get that. But then mm -hmm. Cisco says... I need to know you're not going to take matters into your own hands. How dare you? How dare you say that to somebody yeah. else? Right? You did this. Yeah. Exactly this. And in, in the pale moonlight. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I know yeah. that I'm going to be on the soapbox for this. And I really want to be. <laughs> but I, I need to get this out, John, because it made me so angry when I watched this scene. Mm-hmm. So I want to pick, I don't want to be, a it, 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 it should, it, it should. Yeah. Not only should it make you and everybody else angry that this is even a thing. The fact that it has just been glossed over with, oh, so much dialogue of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's not really the Federation. Well, yes, it, it is, is at this point. It is. Uh, yeah, because they voted against doing what is right. And also this whole idea of just saying like, well, they started the war. Like, I, I, no, I, I'm sorry. Not good enough. Not good enough, damn it. Not good enough. <laughs> well done. Good reference there. But <laughs> if you, you take a look at this, I'm going to try and take a look at this dispassionately and put, you know, what I put on paper is more algebraically. The Federation Council has the cure. So if they have the cure, then Section 31 or Starfleet Intelligence provided them that cure, you know, which creates that link that Bashir was trying to mm -hmm. uh, apologize away. The Federation Council knowingly aided and abetted mass genocide if this is the case. Star Trek's Federation Council. So am I missing something here? Or am I so naive to believe that Deep Space Nine is still trying to promote optimism and a better future for humanity because strategically planned genocide isn't what I remember from what I know of the Federation and up until this point watching Star Trek? I don't know about any of you out there, but that's not what I learned. So also... Yeah. I could, I could, it, it, you know. You're, you're, you're righteously infuriated. I, I agree yeah, with I, it 100. percent I think I've made <laughs> made fair mention of my feelings <laughs> on that. Also, I am really tired of of yes. Cisco taking the moral high ground with anybody. I'm tired of it. I really am because it's not earned and it's certainly not excusable. No. Uh, yeah. Uh, I yeah. 100. Um, percent 
Do you want to move on to, a, I would love to, to. another topic? Because I feel like... I mean, <laughs> Do you? I mean, that that is the topic. And, well, I mean, you know, that is the topic. And I feel like we will come back to it in our wrap-up. But, uh, but there are so many competing plot lines in this episode that I feel like we have to kind of jump from one to another here. And I, I'll just throw out uh, a couple more. I'm going to start with... Rom becoming the Nagus. And look, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here by, in this segment of our podcast, making a judgment call on the production um, and, and the episode as a whole. But I really have to wonder if it was either an earned moment or even if I was invested enough in the outcome. And look, I will give the writers credit here. Um, by having Mugi change Ferengi's society and change Zek, which is great, because I feel like you can only go so far with holding up the uh, the Ferengi as this almost like comedic parallel of, of every bad trait of human capitalism gone wrong, you know, um, that's interesting, but it is very superficial. So you had to get to a point, if we're going to spend too much time with the Ferengi, where you actually show some change and some growth. I think that's fine. And that actually is good enough reason to have somebody like Rom rise to a higher position. But was I actually concerned about any of that up until now? Not really. Quark has been conspicuously absent the last few episodes, and then Rom even more so. Did I really have a need to know what was happening on Ferenginar or with the Nagus? And and are there no other Ferengi left on the homeworld? Because this feels like a a place in the script where they ran out of ideas and somebody says, "Uh, okay, and then one of the characters won the lottery. Like, like, literally just throw that in to, to throw him another curveball. Look, I, I'm always delighted to see Jeffrey Combs in two roles, but I don't know if I needed that right here and right now. So uh, th- this was just like a, a glaring problem with the episode. Not that I mind the idea of Rom constantly exceeding what people think are his shortcomings. I think that's great. I don't mind seeing the Nagus step down. I don't mind seeing changes to Ferengi society. This just seems like all of that got boiled down into a couple of scenes and then slammed into this. Well, I think uh, that uh, going, going back to uh, Extreme Measures, because I'm never going to let that episode off the hook, you could have taken this story mm-hmm. and put it in there as the B plot or the A plot because it would have helped even out sure. just that the singular focus of a very, you know... Um, a very simple story. I'm not saying that that story wasn't important to tell. It just didn't need an entire episode to tell. Neither does this. Neither, neither does this plot point because, again, in, in the uh, I think we've mentioned this before. Since Penumbra, Quark has only been there with a throwaway line or two. So we really haven't even yeah. been invested in what has happening in Ferenginar, nor have we been... Um, educated in a way where these things were actually happening. So everything was this, this deluge from, uh, you know, from Brent saying that all this happened in all this time. Well, we're all supposed to just absorb that and, and digest that all at once in one episode in what, a five minute scene? That just right. doesn't seem like the best use of time to tell this, I think is still an important part of the, of the Ferengi development of, of these characters of Quark and Rom, but not here. You're, you're trying to insert way mm-hmm. too many, uh, catch up plot points because you wasted so much time in the episode prior to it. Totally agree. Totally agree. Now let, let's talk about a, a shining point here. Our man mm-hmm. Damar. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I, I love the change now that we've seen in Damar. And, and I know that I had questioned before, you know, is he doing the right things for the right reasons? How much of this is self-serving? How much of this is just circumstance kind of catching up and, and guiding him? We have seen him now be heroic on more than one occasion. And I love, like you pointed out, how Kira needs to be there to, first of all, get over her own prejudices, but also be that guiding force to say, like, no, 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 here's where you pick yourself up. Here's where you do the right thing. So all of that played out really well. And uh, tip of the hat to writer, producer uh, credits as they belong in this episode. It's a very hard thing to do to constantly show a war on a Mm -hmm. TV budget just because you're talking about scale. But what do we do? We got heavily dramatic scenes with action 
with literally three characters, you know, and it played out just in a handful of locations that really worked well and really sold the gravity of what was going on. Now, the other thing that I find very interesting in this whole uh, plotline vis-a-vis Damar and the Dominion is the psychological warfare on display. So th- this is an interesting nuance that DS9 has explored in a way that other Star Trek I really can't think of has ever done. And and that's really exploring the propaganda war. Several episodes ago, I mentioned how part of the cruelty of the Dominion was using fear and humiliation to drive their enemies to defeat. And in this episode, we get the opposite. And I love how the emerging rumors about Damar, which we absolutely know is the kind of thing that happens... You know, it's just how he uses that to his advantage to inspire, to rally people to his cause. It it is great. And it is even uplifting. You look at the faces of the people around him recognizing it's Damar. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to go do something. Those were terrifically earned moments in this episode. I mean, it is interesting that, you know, you're looking at a Cardassian character and you're almost watching it from the vantage point of the the passersby and the citizens on the street of seeing Damar stand tall and seize the power of the moment, uh, seize that moment of revolution and, and inspire that in others. And that's the kind of thing when you're watching an episode like this, like why didn't they balance out this story? You know, why didn't they balance out more of yeah. the building of the rumors? Uh, Mila coming in, feeding them information, giving them hope to come out of the cellars, giving them the time to be able to set their plan in motion. All the while, like hearing the buzz in the streets, like people talking about Damar still alive. No, he's not. Yes, he is. And then all of a sudden, explosion, he stands tall through the smoke, and everyone's like, there he is. Our leader has returned. Our leader has arrived. But they can't do that in the amount of time Mm -hmm. that they have stolen away from this story to tell a far less, far uh, insignificant story. And that's, that's what makes me so disappointed with this episode, but I'll get to that later. Maybe this episode should have been an old-fashioned variety show, with every part played by Jeffrey Combs. So we have hopefully fed the dogs of war treats. And and they're just taking a nice nap. They're just taking a nice nap in front of the fire, and they're like... Yeah, "Yeah." we really need them to nap, because it's now time for the dogs of... uh, Does the episode hold up? Or the dogs of morals and meanings and messages. And, you know, I know that we have, um, John, we've taken this episode to task. Uh, and I hope that uh, we can bring home uh, a, a more critical and, and more, I don't know, positive final analysis. But it really depends on how the episode held up for you and if you were able to find any morals and meanings or messages. So let's start with you. Did the episode hold up for you? Yeah, I mean, look, here's the difficulty with this episode is that we're looking at the episode on its own. And we're looking at it in the context of this final arc of DS9. And I I find that it just comes up short in both respects. You know, there are certain plot points that could have been dealt with earlier, could have been dealt with in a more natural progression that I feel like fails here. You also have the problem of just we've gone from one extreme to another. Uh, The first extreme being extreme measures where it was this bloated episode that was an hour long of one story that didn't need to be that long. And so from a production standpoint, it didn't work from a production standpoint for the opposite reasons. This one doesn't work. It's so disjointed. There are so many different plot lines and the interesting plot lines are the ones that get swept under the rug. So there's too much happening in too little time. And and yes, look, I, I think our criticism about extreme measures is justifiable. It was this huge diversion from the really interesting stories. And now I'm trying to figure out how it went wrong in the opposite way here. It feels like the writers were all in agreement about how some of these plot points and character arcs would progress. 
But then it got out of hand with who was writing what and where those moments would occur in the story. There was such incredible buildup in the first six episodes of this whole arc. And then it just went off the rails. And now it it feels like with the penultimate episode, they're madly scrambling to fit in everything they either forgot to do or didn't satisfactorily lay the groundwork for earlier. The, the plot lines here that are most interesting, well, definitely Damar and definitely that little taste of what we got with Odo and the, the true ethical problem here of Section 31 and the Federation and genocide. And look, while I care about Quark and Rom, I don't care enough about Zek and the situation on Ferenginar. They've been played so much for comic relief that it just it breaks the pacing for this episode to try to fit all of that in. So I think it's not a strong episode in context of the final nine, and it's not a strong episode taken merely on its own terms. I think it, it fumbles the ball. I can't say that it holds up. How about you, Norman? Yeah, I mean, I'm very much on the same page with you, John. I mean, I wanted this episode so badly to right the wrongs of what happened in Extreme Measures. And my problem with this episode is that it overcompensated way in the other direction, trying to fit in way too much exposition because in this state of the game with the three hours that we have left in the series... Time is a premium, and there are mm-hmm. only so many minutes left, which extreme measures wasted, about 30 to 40 minutes of that very precious resource. The shotgun approach mm-hmm. to this episode made it just too unbalanced and too uneven. The pacing was all over the place. The plot points were important, but there were too many opportunities that were lost to explore what you were saying before, the horrors of the Federation and what it has chosen to to be with getting into bed with section in the 31 and doing, you know, uh, planning genocide against the founders. Mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, the development of Damar and how the Cardassian people have almost in a way have become the Bajorans at the end of this story. You know, the occupied people that are looking for a heroic leader to lead them into liberation. But there's just other things that are getting in the way. Esri's and Julian's relationship, the stuff that's happening on Ferenginar, a baby now, right? Like, <laughs> come know. on, like pick, pick and choose your battles and, and really flesh those storylines out or don't waste time and be economical about your storytelling. I, I mean, I'm just going to call it like I see it. This episode should have just had more breathing room because there were just two, mm-hmm. there were two very specific plot points that needed to be explored. And I don't know. I hope that what you leave behind, you know, in its extra length can can bring a lot of these story threads to a close. I'm I'm just so disappointed that the first two thirds of this nine story arc, six episodes were so freaking good that they can't bring it home, at least not yet. But I remain optimistic. It's just that they were so good. And people can listen to our past episodes on that from Penumbra up until the episode before Extreme Measures, Strange Bedfellows, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And you could hear us compliment and and, uh, just fawn over and love all over those episodes because they were that good. And now they're not. Yeah. So, but... How about let's take a look at the morals and meanings and messages if you were able to mine any. Yeah, I, I mean, look, there, there's so much that I like about the heroism of Damar, and I, I, I do feel like I'm sold now that this is somebody making good decisions for good reasons, and that, that's really what it comes down to is just you know seeing that character be the best version of himself that he can be and be inspiring, and that that's wonderful to watch. Now... The problem that I run into here is with one line spoken by Odo, and he says it to Cisco, and we, we've hammered this already. The Federation claims to abhor Section 31's tactics, but when they need the dirty work done, they look the other way. I'm gutted by this. We've had every opportunity for Cisco, for Bashir, for anyone to now come out and make a strong statement on the right side of this. But Odo is the only one who is calling it like it is. 
had this been a standalone episode, we may have gotten more. I, I would have given up, yeah, 35 minutes of what happened in Extreme Measures to then spend more time on this, which is truly much more important. But look, now, now we're back to why the episodes don't work in the time allotments that they're given. This conversation with Odo is buried in Act 1, and we spend the next four acts worried about who will be the Grand Nagus. And I, I, I'm scratching my head here trying to figure it out. There was the heart of an important ethical discussion here. There was uh, the beginning of a conversation of what the Federation is and what it stands for. And if we can get past this war thing being the excuse for all of this bad behavior, who's going to come in and say, hey, guess what? Now we actually have to live up to our principles. That's the moment that I'm waiting for. And this episode went an entirely different direction. So that's about it as far as what I'm seeing there. I, I, I feel like if you were to... Well, I, I want to hear what you have to say about the other plot lines here. Because I've I got some thoughts there too, but I'll save it. <laughs> well, I actually, I as, as much as I think that the ferengi story the story about how quark and rom were are you know um were going to be chosen to be the grand nagus and you know the garbled communications that created this entire misunderstanding i do like one scene though that sets the tone uh that it's kind of like you know we always say that star trek is um an analogy of what the the current situation or the state of affairs of the world today uh, and it reflects that that condition there is something in a scene where when Quark and Rom were haggling about who's going to buy the bar, when Rom was trying to, at least I think when Rom was actually trying to buy the bar from Quark, Quark is just kind of like outwardly lamenting what has happened to Ferenginar. And I just want to hmm. choose a couple lines to show you and illustrate the meaning that I got from this. So Quark says, you can't even dump industrial waste anymore because it might harm the natural habitat. I'm supposed to start worrying about animals now? Look how they live, wallowing in dirt, sleeping in trees. That's not natural. And Ram says, I suppose you could argue that Frankenar's biodiversity is a precious resource that belongs to everyone. This is the conversation that's actually happening out there in the world today. Yeah. You know, Quark says, yeah. and don't even get me started on this whole labor rights thing. What have we come to if you can't demand sexual favors from people in your employ? And Ram <laughs> says, unharassed workers are productive workers. I mean, if it weren't for Rom, like delivering the comical timing of, so what are you going to do with the bar mm. to break basically a sledgehammer delivery of what is easily a capitalist versus Marxist socialist conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would, see, it would seem comical and heavy handed, but really think about where Rom is coming from, from his signature episode, in my opinion, Bar Association. So what I really liked about this part of the episode is how Ram and Quark are the archetypes who represent the clash of generational ideals that we're seeing in the world today. The younger generation is fed up with the stagnant bloat upon the world that is capitalism and not just desire social change, but are taking steps in trying to create a world of greater representation in every aspect of life, in politics, in religion, in sexual representation, and in labor. So this just seems to me to be very much in the revolutionary perspective attitude of Star Trek. And, and yes, it, it may have come off heavy-handed for, say, 1999, talking about socialist and Marxist progressivism in a predominantly, quote-unquote, capitalist medium on network television yes that was a bold decision but one that was really necessary to reflect what star trek does the social fabric and the dynamic of the times especially today especially today and if i may paraphrase karl marx writers of star trek unite you have nothing to lose but your chains okay look you did it i got nothing else to add to that because you nailed it <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, what you leave behind. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, 
Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Are we done with this episode yet? My dogs are howling. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.